Let's pray. Our Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, open Bible uh, to hear from you. Lord, we believe that this word changes us, and we believe that our, our attendance here with the Bible open is, Lord, to be more of who you intend us to be and to uh, see you more clearly, Lord. And with that, we know we're going to love and adore you even more. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness of sins, Lord, the, 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 the work on the cross that you did. And all of that means to us, Lord, that you love us that way. We pray, Lord, against that ever becoming stale in our ears and in our hearts. So we lift up this time to you that you would teach us, Lord, what you want us to know tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So Ephesians 1 wasn't controversial at all, right? So that was good. Okay, so let's see what Ephesians 2 does here. Okay, so <clears throat> now in Ephesians 2, well, Paul began chapter 1 by expounding to the believer the magnificence of God's work toward us in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He concluded chapter 1 with his prayer that God would grant to us the ability to see and to comprehend the unspeakable benefits of Christ's work for us. It's chapter 1 finished with speaking of Christ's lofty position in the heavenlies where he is seated with all authority and power and he's working on behalf of all who love him. Now Paul will begin his great exposition of the earthly view of what Christ has done for us. So we kind of got this cosmic heavenly view at the end of chapter 1, and now it's going to get a little bit more practical and earthly for us here in chapter 2. Now, in these first 10 verses, Paul's thoughts, just like in chapter 1, I told you most of chapter 1 is one long sentence. In chapter 2, I'm going to quote William Barclay, who said about these first 10 verses. He said, in this passage, Paul's thought flows on regardless of the rules of grammar. He begins sentences and never finishes them. He begins with one construction and halfway through he glides into another construction. That's because this is far more a lyric of love of God than it is a careful theological exposition of God. The song of the nightingale is not to be analyzed by the laws of musical composition. The lark sings for the joy of singing. That is what Paul is doing here. He's pouring out his heart, and the claims of grammar have to give way to the wonders of grace. Isn't that wonderful? So let's get into these uh, wonders of God's grace. So chapter 2, after that heavenly look... He now says to the believer, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, 
just as the others. Now, we get these words here, trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins. Now, <clears throat> the Bible will use trespasses, sins, it'll use iniquity, it'll use all these different words that deal with our failings and our shortcomings. But there are subtle differences between the words that I want to talk about. This word sin, the one you're most commonly hear about, is the Greek word harmartia. And it's an archery term, as you may have heard, which simply means you missed the mark. Now, if sin is missing the mark, then obviously the Bible's saying there's a mark that you're supposed to hit. Now, if there's a mark you're supposed to hit, the idea is, since it's an archery term, you're always aiming at a bullseye. So there's some bullseye out there that we're supposed to hit, and when we don't hit it, we've missed the mark and we've sinned. So what is that bullseye? Well, God told us to be holy as he is holy, to be perfect as he is perfect. That's the bullseye. And when we don't operate in that moral perfection, we've sinned. Now, I think the big problem, both within and without the church, is that most people walk around not realizing that there's a target to hit. So they're not aiming at anything. And so therefore, they don't know when they're missing. And therefore, when somebody confronts them and says, why are you doing what you're doing, that sin, they're going to justify it because they don't know what they were supposed to be aiming for. So what are you supposed to be aiming for? Holiness. Holiness. Now, what's interfering with the pursuit of holiness? I think it's actually the pursuit of happiness. And it's not because those things are not, can't be together. It's just that if you pursue happiness first, rarely will holiness follow because our desires that we think achieve happiness are very often sinful desires. And we mistake happiness for joy. We think the sin that's bringing us happiness in the moment is somehow going to last. And then when it doesn't last, we somehow think there's not going to be any shame or any regret that came with the sin that we did. And then when we get hit with the shame and the regret, we somehow act like we're surprised by that. When if you really consider not only the history of the world, but the history of your own life, you'll realize that it's a pattern that's repeated over and over and over again. So to pursue happiness is not to forfeit holiness, but it's to compromise your pursuit of holiness. But in your pursuit of holiness, it is not compromising happiness. And I think because everybody's immediate goal is happiness, holiness is often excluded from that pursuit. But if instead we put our minds on holiness, God's holiness and the pursuit of that holiness, we'll find that he has much happiness for us in that pursuit. He'll actually change our desires and the things that we actually desire and we'll start desiring things that we used to not desire and then when we get those desires we go well i'm really happy and i didn't know i would ever like that thing but i would that's because you were never pursuing holiness first so now that you have an aim now that you know there's a bullseye and a target as you shoot towards that target god's going to show you that he will fulfill the desires of your heart on that pursuit of the target and that happiness is going to come from 
you're drawing closer and closer and closer to God instead of further and further and further away through sin. So this is harmartia. There is a target. There is a bullseye. You should be aiming for that. You should know that there's something to aim at. And that missing that is sin. Even failing to do a good that you know you should do is sin. In other words, God has, as a part of your holiness, being very useful in good things for other people. And if you fail to do the good that you know you should have done, that's harmartia. You missed the mark. The mark was to be helpful in that situation. This word is used 221 times in the New Testament. Hebrews 12.1 is an example. It says in Hebrews 12.1 that it's harmartia was so easily besets us. It so easily overcomes us. And we shouldn't get entangled with this harmartia. The second word we get for sin is this word hetema, which is sometimes uh, translated as failure. There's a failure that we're doing. So the definition for hetema would be diminishing what should have been given full measure. So in other words, something deserved a full measure of your attention and you didn't give it that full measure. That's hetema or a failure. We all need God's help on this one. Now, this is placing emphasis on things that please God. When we place emphasis on things that please God, that will bring God's blessings into our life when we emphasize what he emphasizes and we de-emphasize what he de-emphasizes. A third word we get in Scripture. Oh, by the way, if you want a Bible verse for Hetema, it's 1 Corinthians 6-7. It says, there is fault among you, Paul tells the Christian church. There is Hetema among you. A third word for sin is paraptoma, which is often translated as trespasses. The idea of a trespass is falling when you should have stood. Okay, there's this opportunity to stand for something, but you fell in that thing. It's a willful transgression. Your will is involved with the trespass. Now, this could be, it's also used, I should say, as an unintentional slip. Ephesians 1.7, it says, We have the forgiveness of paraptoma, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of our grace, which means even when you slip into sin, his grace covers that slip. Agnaema is this idea of ignorance when you should have known better. Have you ever been told you should have known better? Did you ever tell that to somebody else? You should have known better. Okay, that's Agna Emma. Hebrews 9, 7. The Agna Emma of the people committed in ignorance. It says the errors of the people committed in ignorance. Okay? That passage speaks of how the Old Testament was a shadow of the New Testament, and ignorance is no excuse. That's why we stay in God's word. What's the best commentary on Old Testament passages? The New Testament. You actually get inspired authors commenting on Old Testament passages, don't you? What's the best commentary on the New Testament? The old, how the Old Testament 
lives their life in the Old Testament and it's prefiguring Christ, right? Then the New Testament authors come and they go, wow, we studied these passages forever and ever, but now that I've met Jesus, I understand the fulfillment of those passages is Christ, okay? In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says to the Pharisees, now who are the Pharisees? Teachers of the Old Testament, the guys that study the Old Testament so that on Saturday in synagogue they could actually teach the Old Testament to the Jewish people. What did Jesus say to those guys? He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now listen to this and catch how arrogant this would sound. He's saying these scriptures that you study and that you teach, that your fathers studied, that their fathers studied, that their fathers studied all the way back to Moses. All of that studying, all of that sharing, all of that teaching, all you ever did was teach about me. Can you imagine how that sounded to them? Okay. Can you imagine how that sounded to them? He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but are the, it's these that speak of me. Okay, in Luke chapter 24, walking with the Emmaus Road disciples, it's that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he taught them about him. Starting with Moses. Where do we start with Moses? Not Exodus. It's talking about the authorship of Moses, which is Genesis. Starting with Genesis and all the scriptures, he taught those Emmaus Road disciples about him. That's a Bible study I wish I could have been at. <clears throat> and what did they say about that Bible study? They say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked with us? Okay. I've never had anybody say that about this Bible study. <laughs> I've heard people say I gave them heartburn, <laughs> but not their hearts burning. Yes. <laughs> All right. And then we have parakoi. Parakoi is to refuse to hear and to heed God's word. 2 Corinthians 10.6 says this about this word. 2 Corinthians 10.6 says, And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That word for disobedience there is parakoi. Bringing, um, he says you're supposed to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to parakoi all disobedience. That means to hear and to follow opposed to refusing to hear or to heed God's word. So we, if we don't bring our thoughts captive to Christ, we're guilty of parakoi. It's that type of sin. Then there's parabasis, and that's to intentionally cross a line. This is often translated as iniquity. It's intentionally cross a line. Um, or transgression, sometimes it's also translated. Hebrews 2.2 translates it in the King James as transgression, where it talks about every parabesis and disobedience, which is the parakoi, received a just recompense of reward. So it's talking about when angels brought the, covenant, the Old Testament law, the Jews believed that Moses received those commandments from an angelic, angelic messengers. And when they brought that, those angelic messengers brought the law to Moses, it said every sin and disobedience Every parabesis and paracoi received a just punishment. 
And it's talking about in that passage how if they were justly punished for disobeying what was brought to them by angels, how much more should we expect to be punished when we disobey Christ? Okay? All right. This is the idea of God drawing a line in the sand and we intentionally stepping, step across that line. Last one to cover. This is anomia and paranomia, which we often translate as lawlessness. It's willfully breaking God's written rules. It's knowing the written rule and intentionally going out and breaking the written rule. It's Titus 2.14. There um, says that Jesus gave himself for us in order to redeem us from all anomia, all iniquity. See, God has rules that are designed to bless us and not to curse us. Someone once said, you probably heard this often, the Bible is the owner's manual for human beings. So can you imagine trying to operate something as complicated as a human life without referring to the owner's manual? Right? You don't do that to your car, or your dishwasher, or anything else. Right? You do it according to the owner's manual. Okay? Well, we have a creator, and that creator says, here's how you operate best. Here's how you work well. And just like when you don't treat a car according to the owner's manual, there's a consequence. Same thing uh, with us. So Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we who are dead... We're made alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we who were dead, he made alive. <laughs> now, I want you to notice this. He says, you who were once dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And I only say that because that can of worms of Calvinism we've been doing is the idea there is you're so totally depraved that you're dead. Dead people can't respond to God. But this says they're walking in their deadness of trespasses and sins. So we can't just paint pictures like that, right? The Bible's saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, right? So if we're going to say you're incapable because of the deadness of your trespasses and sins, then the Bible shouldn't say you're walking while you're that dead, correct? All right? So you're probably wondering where's he going with that, and I'm not telling you. Okay? I'm just giving you pieces of the puzzle as they appear type of thing. And I am considering doing a, maybe a nine, Romans 9 through 11 teaching verse by verse, maybe one of these Wednesdays, um, because it's become important to me, if you can't tell. This conversation has become important to me. Um, just what God's doing with me, this has become very important for some reason. I'm driving my Bible team at school very nuts with this. I think I told you, one of them said, can we not talk about this anymore? And that's where I, I open my eyes to. I think I'm bothering them with all this. But anyways. All right. So. Now, think of Adam and Eve for a moment. God said to Adam and Eve, on the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And then they live seven, 800 years after that. Why? Some say spiritual death, and then you've got to be born again. I agree. But I say, don't miss the fact that there's an innocent animal that died in that chapter. 
Its blood was shed, its skin was removed, and that blood was shed and that skin was removed to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, which was the sign of their separation from God. It was a sign of their sin and their shame. God's covering it with an animal. That animal experienced the death that Adam and Eve were promised, right? That's called substitutionary atonement. A substitute was allowed for Adam and Eve. It's pointing to Christ's work, isn't it? as our lamb, our lamb of God, that he's going to have to die and we're going to have to be covered by his righteousness. And that's not speculative. Jesus teaches that himself in the parable of the wedding feast where he says somebody showed up at the wedding feast without the right wedding garments and they were cast into hell for that. Because what was the right wedding garments? The ones that the, the, the king had to give you. He gave you a wedding garment. If you wore that, you were welcome in the wedding. If you came with your own your own righteousness, your own covering, you got kicked out because you're not saved by works, are you? You're saved by grace through faith alone, right? So, so he's got to give you the covering because he did the dying for you. He's going to be your covering. So he's our righteous covering that allows us into the wedding feast. Now, I want to share with you, I know I'm still in verse 3, can we put the time up on the TV, James, so I know where I'm at? Um, Nine fifteen. Okay, seven twenty-five. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, I kind of want to show you when Jesus says, "All you ever did was teach about me," when you teach the Old Testament, right? And as we're talking about this covering for sin, I want to show you how Jesus may have told the Emmaus Road disciples about him from Moses and the prophets, starting with Adam and Eve. So think of Eve's sin for a moment. The Bible describes Eve's sin. It says she, when she saw that the fruit was pleasing, that she took the fruit, she ate it, she gave it to her apostles who were with them, and they ate. No, I just confused the two testaments. <laughs> Adam and Eve had no apostles. <laughs> Some of you are going, wow, apostles, Adam and Eve. I wonder if they had 12 of them. All right, okay. Scratch the record on that one. Here we go again. Adam, when, when Eve, with Eve, it says she took the fruit, she ate it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Listen to the sentence again. She took the fruit, she ate it, she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now they all have to die. Go to the Last Supper in the New Testament. Jesus says, though you die, you shall live, correct? Now he takes bread, and he says, this is my body broken for you. Now what's it say? He took the bread, he ate it, and he gave it to his apostles who were with him, and they ate. It's the same sentence as Eve. Why? He's overcoming the curse that she brought. Okay? It's very intentional. Okay? What about the curse on Adam? On the curse on Adam, the Bible says God curses Adam by saying, when you want to bring forth bread from the earth, you'll do it through the sweat of your brow, and the ground will produce thorns and thistles to frustrate your work. And he's already made shamefully naked. On the cross, Jesus is made shamefully naked. And he says in John 6, I'm the bread 
that came down from heaven and you have to eat my flesh. So he's got to bring himself forth as our bread. How does he bring himself as our bread? Well, he's made shamefully naked at the cross where the only sweaty brow you're ever going to read about in the New Testament is the sweaty brow of Christ in Gethsemane. So the, through the sweat of his brow and the thorns and the thistles he's wearing as a crown to frustrate his work and the shameful nakedness of Adam, he's taken on all three parts of Adam's curse so that he can redeem us from, from Adam's curse, just like he redeemed us from Eve's curse. He's covering it all, isn't he? This is how the Old Testament speaks of Jesus throughout. We're to be looking for the fulfillments of Christ through the Old Testament. So Paul is giving us the part of the gospel truth that is oftentimes neglected. We were once dead in trespasses and sins. We once walked hand in hand with the enemy who lured us into spiritual deadness so as to be unresponsive to the repulsiveness of the sin we were committing. He attributes the behaviors that accompany this deadness as participation with the devil, calling him a prince since he has so many loyal subjects. He says, you once walked according to the prince of this air. It's the same Paul who's going to say that you don't battle with flesh and blood, you battle with principalities and powers of darkness in higher places, right? I think we fail to remember the spiritual world that is at battle for our souls every day. And if you keep in mind the spiritual battle that's going on for your soul today, then you'll start seeing the things that hit the mark or miss the mark. What, whose side am I on with the decisions I'm making every day? This decision, does it reflect the spiritual realm of God and Jesus Christ who died for me, or does it represent the principalities and powers of darkness in higher places? And if you go, I never do anything that dark. Well, just understand the fish that bites into the bait doesn't see it as something dark. He sees it as something good, but then he's dead five minutes later, okay? So there's wisdom that's required. There's wisdom that's required. Verse 3. He says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature's children of wrath, just as the others. Now this is like the language of 1 John 2. We're in 1 John 2, starting in verse 15. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So you have lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let's go back to Genesis 3 and see how that plays out. With Eve, listen to this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, you seen the lust of the eyes? She saw that the tree was good for food. You see the lust of the flesh? 
It's good for food, that's lust of the flesh. It's pleasant to the eyes, that's lust of the eyes. And it's a tree desirable to make one wise. There's the pride of life. The very things that John is talking about. Let's look at Jesus in the wilderness with Satan in Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Lust of what? The flesh. Satisfy your hunger, right? But he answered and said, It is written. Where is it written? Old Testament, right? Jesus battles Satan with the word of God. Can you imagine if you're not somebody who reads the word of God and you're fighting principalities and powers of darkness in higher places? Jesus uses the word of God to fight his battles. We have to have this word of God in our heart. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Jesus's food. Isn't that amazing? My food is to do the will of my Father who sent me, he said. Lust of the flesh is how Satan attacked Jesus first. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. So Satan's going, wait, he wants to use the word of God to fight me. I'm going to use the word of God to fight him back. So Satan says, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. That's attacking Jesus with the pride of life. You have all authority. You have charge over the angels. You jump off the temple. They have to rescue you. So do it. That's tempting God. That's tempting God. It's tempting God when we say, like, like when the atheist said, listen, if God's real, then strike me dead right now. That's tempting God. And I say, he didn't do it, did he? I told you, he's a God of love and patience. You just proved the very God I've been trying to tell you about. Right? Okay. Now, third temptation of Christ. Well, Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, lust of the eyes. And he said to him, all the things I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. Imagine that. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. I want you to think of that verse right there with all of the moral decisions you make. Are you worshiping the Lord God with that decision and serving him only with that decision? See the only one you're serving with the choices of your life. Because here he says, you're to serve God only. All right, verse four. But God, okay? And I was reminded by one of my faithful students out there that I owe you a sermon on the big butts of the Bible, right? Okay, because those are, that word but changes everything, right? That word but changes everything. Darkness and death and all that, then it's always but God 
and now we're saved, right? But God, who is rich in mercy, and those great words to hear and say, the God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, he's rich in mercy, and he has great love. This is contrasted to our pitiful conditions that he just talked about. We were dead in trespasses of sins, but he's rich in mercy and great in love. It's incredible contrasts. The more we can rightly consider our own condition and sin, the more he's going to shine brighter in our hearts and minds. The more we think we're pretty good, the less beautiful he looks. Okay? So when you, go to buy a, when you go to a jewelry store to buy a diamond, and you say, hey, I want to see this one here, they'll get the diamond out, but they're not going to just put it on the glass. What are they going to do? They take a piece of black velvet, set that on the glass, and put the diamond on the black velvet. Because the contrast between the black and the shiny diamond is going to make the diamond look even better and brighter, Right? The more you can realize the blackness of our sin, the more he's going to shine as the diamond he is. Okay? He's a great savior. In fact, really quick, and that's probably a lie, but I'm going to share with you a bit of a conversation I had with students today because we were talking about this contrast. And I was trying to think of who's the deepest, darkest person I could think of to contrast. Well, I don't know what stories you've heard of Jeffrey Dahmer, but I'll tell you the ones that that I've heard. We all know he was a serial killer. We all know that he was a necrophiliac having sex with his dead victims. And we all know that he was a cannibal that would eat the body parts afterwards. Okay, that's bad stuff, right? So bad that after he's convicted and he goes to death row, death row inmates who are bad people look at him and say, you're bad. And they kill him in, in death row. They, they murdered him in death row. But when they cleaned out his cell, they found one of Chuck Colson's prison ministers on his bed. And that made them ask the question to the chaplain, did he become a Christian? The chaplain said, yes, he gave his life to the Lord, which raised all sorts of angst in people. Could Jeffrey Dahmer go to heaven? Well, it depends. Your belief in him going to heaven depends. This is assuming if he came to Christ, it was authentic. Because sometimes people that might have parole hearings think that'll help the parole hearing, right? Which is very flattering that when they want to look like a good person, they claim Christianity, right? That's what they claim. They claim, hey, if they think I follow Christ, then they'll think I'm pretty good, 
right? So anyways, if he authentically gave his life to Christ, is Christ's work on the cross strong enough to save him? We would say yes, right? That's my view of Christ. There's nothing that if you bring to him through faith that he can't redeem. Otherwise, he's not the Savior I know. But then the other question is, what about any of his victims are in heaven? How are they going to feel about that? Okay. If they're on the earth, I think they'd be pretty upset. But if they're in heaven, I think they're hooting and hollering louder than all the other angels. Because their interest is Christ's interest, not their own personal interest. And if Christ saved them, and that, that, that life is bringing glory to Christ now, then they're going to rejoice in the glory that Jesus received from forgiving them. Okay? That kind of stretches the boundaries of how have you viewed the cross? Okay? I, I refuse to have any limits to what can be forgiven. You know what can't be forgiven at the cross? It's not the serial killing of or it's not the necrophilia of Jeffrey Dahmer, and it's not the cannibalism of Jeffrey Dahmer. What can't be forgiven at the cross is unbelief. It's the unbeliever that's committing the sin that the cross is not going to cover. Because how many times do we read, if you believe, if you believe, if you believe, if you believe. If you believe is covering perfect obedience to 613 Old Testament laws. You had to obey them without a flaw. And Paul says, if you violate one, you violated them all because the standard is perfection, correct? So to miss on just one, one time, is the same of always missing on all of them all of the time. Because both of them fall short of perfection. Okay? Yet Jesus lived a life that fulfilled all of them all of the time. Even meeting Satan face to face for 40 days after not eating for 40 days. The father of lies couldn't take him down even when he was starving to death. Yes, his cross, I think, could cover. Sin that comes to him in faith and belief. Now, the memory verses we get out of this chapter are right here, verse 8 and 9, right? For you've been saved by grace through faith alone, not of work. It's a, I'm sorry, not, that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone... Verse 10, though, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so this is the relationship between faith and works. If you were here for the James study, then you're like, I know all this already. Okay, but what I want to point out is this. Another piece of the puzzle that I said I give you as we encounter them. It says, for by grace you have been faith, and that not of yourself. That's not of yourself. What's the that? Well, I'll get in. In the Greek, that is in the neuter gender. So it's got to modify something else that's in the neuter gender. But the problem here is, is that grace and faith are feminine. So that can't be faith by itself, and it can't be grace by itself. Now, those of you that are of the persuasion want it to be faith, saying you can't have faith of yourself 
or incapable of belief on your own. Here it says, your faith is not of yourself, but it cannot refer to faith. So then those of other persuasions say, well, then it's got to be God's grace. It's God's grace that that's not of yourself. But that's in the feminine as well. So what is it? What's the that? It's the saved. Your salvation's not of yourself. It's this package saved by grace through faith. That package, that I think is God's preordained manner of saving people. As those who will receive grace, it's by their faith they'll receive that grace. And you can't say that the faith is not of that. This is saying because the genders don't match here. The that cannot modify faith or grace. So it's modifying your salvation. Your salvation is not of yourself. I believe God did 100% of everything that's required for you to go to heaven one day. And then he says this, do you believe? You know why that's why I think it goes? Because that's what the text says throughout all of scripture. Jesus himself will say to his apostles, do you believe? He didn't say, I'm making you believe. He's asking them, do you believe? That's how I read it. It's how it's written, actually. Now, so verse 10, <clears throat> you're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in those good works. Okay? So God has a purpose and a plan for our lives that is met through the fruit that we bear, the fruit that we bear are the good works that we play out in our lives. Those are prepared for us to do. That's why Jesus said a bad tree produces bad fruit and the good trees produce good fruit because Jesus, <coughs> Jesus says make the tree good and then its fruit will be good, okay? Bad trees don't produce good fruit and good trees don't produce bad fruit. So what is this relationship between faith and works? Well, what book and chapter do you know that speaks directly to it, but in possibly a very confusing way. Right, James 2, right? James 2 says this. What does it profit, my brother? This starts in verse 14, 214. What does it profit, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? That's a weird statement because you would think that it's absolutely yes, but let's play this out and see where is James going with this. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit them? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Saying, If you see a person in need and you're of true faith, then you're going to have the works that meet the need in the moment. That's what faith does. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 say, says. You've been saved by grace through faith alone, and that's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works so nobody can boast. So now that you know how you've been saved by grace through faith alone, guess what? He created you as his workmanship to do good works. That's how you were created. If you're not going by how you were created, then the question is, who's exactly the father that you're following? Is it the father of lies or the, or, or, or the father that's God? Because if it's God, then he made you to do these good works. And Jesus said, that's how you'll know who are mine, because they're doing these things. Okay? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, what is he saying when he says, show me your faith 
without your works. Well, he picks up on that in verse 19. You believe that there's one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now, what do the demons believe? It's not just that they believe in God. It's that they believe that there's one God. It says you believe God is one. Even the demons believe God is one. Okay? But they understand that one God rules over them. They tremble at him. Okay? These principalities and powers of darkness in higher places tremble at Yahweh. Okay? Now, if you have faith without works attached to it, James says you have the faith of demons. You will never encounter a demon that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. But you'll never encounter a demon that has good works. So to be a so-called Christian who says they believe in Jesus Christ and has no good works, James says you're on the level of a demon. That's exactly the demonic world. No demon will ever say, I don't believe in Jesus. They say, I believe in Jesus Christ. And they say this, I hate him. And that's why I don't serve him. Okay? So God is asking you not to be in that category. Okay? But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father? Okay, now, this is why people get confused on this passage. Because James clearly uses the word justified in two different ways. Sometimes he uses it to say you were justified like you're saved, your salvation. Sometimes he says... You're justified by the works that are proving your salvation. It justifies your claim of salvation because you have the works that back it up. So instead, when James means justified that way, I put in my Bible the word verified. This is a justification that's a verification, right? It's like your driver's license justifies your claim that you're that person, right? It verifies that claim that you're that person. But it's not salvific justification. That's a different justification. So James is using the same word to make a point, but it confuses us English readers. So he says, Was not Abraham our father verified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, his faith was made perfect. Doesn't mean... It was pretty good faith without the works, and then it was perfect faith with it. This word perfect means completed. It's fulfilled. Now you know for sure he's a man of faith because he's also a man of good works. The good works are justifying, verifying the fact that he claims to have faith. Because way before the sacrifice of Isaac, chapters earlier, it says Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Not Abraham served God and that was credited as righteous. It says Abraham believed God. And Paul says that makes all the difference in the world. He's saved because he believed. So you get asked the question, how are people in the Old Testament saved? Same way we are. They believed in future promises of God. We believe in the fulfillment of those promises through Jesus Christ. But it's all belief. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. So he sees Abraham had the works of being willing to sacrifice his son, but that just simply verified the verse that says Abraham believed God and was counted for righteousness. So in Genesis 15, when it says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, if you were there, you'll go, but I don't see it. 
How do I know? I can't see any change. He believed, but that's not visible. His belief is invisible to me, correct? Well, it says, well, then look at him willing to sacrifice his son. That work proves that he really did believe God. Does that make sense? Okay. Thank goodness. All right. So you see then, and he was called a friend of God, you see then that a man is justified by works. He's verified by works, not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified? Wasn't her faith proven by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. In Joshua 2.11, it says that Rahab, Rahab says this in, in Joshua 2. 2.11. In 2.11 it says, we heard what God did for you when you crossed the Red Sea and you took down Jericho and all. We heard, and it says, and they feared. She's saying, my people feared, but she believed. So now she's confessing belief in the God of Joshua. Then five verses later, she does the works of hiding the spies. 2.11 becomes, comes before 2.16, Correct? 2.11, she said she believed. 2.16, she does the works that James says justified her belief of 2.11. So did work save her? No. Do they verify and justify the claim that she's a believer? Yes. Does that make sense? All right. That's good because we're halfway done and we're, it's almost 8 o'clock. All right, verse 10. All right, I did verse 10, thank goodness. All right, let's move on to verse 11. 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision. That's saying you're Gentiles who didn't have circumcision, and you're called uncircumcision by the circumcision group, which are the Jews. Um, made in the flesh by hands. Circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See how he equivocates not having God and not having hope. Right? That's how it is. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the communion picture that's being drawn for us. We're brought near by the blood of Christ. And Christ says, you need to remember that event of the cross. So what does he institute so that we have constant reminders of what happened on the cross? Communion, right? That's why it's maddening when people sneak out before communion. It's maddening, okay? God says, remember this event, and you say, but I got to beat the traffic, right? Okay? We take communion. It's a, it's a sacrament. It's holy. It's sacred. Okay? It's crackers and juice, but it's holy and it's sacred because of what it represents and, it, and our need to remember. How many of you remember when I, way back in my Catholic days, what, what my priest did because people kept leaving before communion? Not, put a sign over the exit door said, Judas left early too. Okay? I promise you if I start a church, I'm starting with that sign over the exit door. After the stained glass windows in the steeple. 
that is going to be the sign over the exit door, okay? I'm not going to start a church, so I can promise whatever I want. All right. All right, verse 14. Huh, 12? I think I'm on 14. Okay. For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made both one. Okay, awesome talk about Jew and Gentile becoming one in Christ here. He has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. He's talking about a literal middle wall at the temple that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of women. And we actually found a sign that was from that wall that said, that forbade, it said, uh, let no one of any other nation come without, within this fence and barrier around the holy place. Whosoever will be taken doing so, will himself be responsible for the fact that his death will ensue. Okay, they're so serious about who could approach God in the temple that if a Gentile came too close, it said, your death will ensue if you cross this gate here. Okay. Now, I can't say that my sources on this give me a whole lot of confidence in what I'm about to say, so you can take it or leave it, or do the research yourself and tell me if it's viable, but it certainly sounds beautiful. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? So the thought is that at the temple, when you went from the courtyard, when you went from outside the courtyard in the courtyard, the gate you went through was called the way. Then when you went from the courtyard into the holy place, that gate you went through was called the truth. And then when you went from the holy place to the most holy place, the holy of holies, that gate was called the life. So, when, so to approach God, you had to go through the way, the truth, and the life. And then what, of course, does Jesus say of himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's how the priest got to the Father on Yom Kippur to offer the sacrifice. He would have to go through the way, the truth, and the life to get to the Father. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. Isn't that remarkable? All right. Verse um, 15. Okay. So he made peace, broke down the middle wall of separation that separated Gentile from entering to where the Jews could go. And it says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So from the two, Jew and Gentile, he made into one that now are called Christian. The Jew and the Gentile should abandon those tags and simply those who come to him in faith are now called Christian. He made one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity that once existed that kept them separated. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, I have to make a decision in two seconds how much I'm going to unpack of this. Okay. 
First the story, then a little unpacking. This might go into the Q&A time just a little bit because I think it's really good. First of all, this idea of getting rid of the middle wall separation by abolishing the law and the commandments. Here's a story of a French soldier who went to bury their fallen friend. When they went to bury the fallen friend at the church, the priest asked if that man was baptized. And they said they didn't know if he was baptized or not. So the priest said he couldn't bury them in the, him in the churchyard then. He can't bury an unbaptized person in his churchyard. So they buried him just outside the church fence. Days later, they went to pay their respects and they couldn't find the gravesite. The priest saw them looking around for the gravesite and brought them to the gravesite. He told them that his heart was tro troubled over what he had said. So he got up during the night and moved the fence to include his friend. That's what Jesus did here. Okay? He abolished the walls of separation. He moved the fence so that it includes everybody. Nobody's outside the fence unless you stay in your unbelief. Then you're outside. But Jesus took down the walls that separate. And it says he made one new man. Now the most common Greek word for new is naos. That's not the word here. That means new in time. It's just like it wasn't here and now it's here. Kainos is the word that's used here. And that means new in quality. You're a new quality man. Okay? All your old is gone. You're brand new. Paul calls you a new creation. Intentionally calling you a new creation. Because he says you were in darkness. The spirit moved in you. The word was spoken to you and you became the light of the world. Genesis 1 says there was darkness. Then the spirit moved over the waters. Then God's word spoke and light appeared. Same four steps. Creation and salvation. Same four steps. So Paul sees that and he says, you're a new creation. You're a new Genesis 1 when you come to Christ. Okay? That's why Jesus can teach about himself from Moses and the prophets. Okay? He's the one new man. Chrysostom said this, and it's really beautiful. This joining of Jew and Gentile to one new man, he says, it is as if one should melt down a statue of silver and a statue of lead, and the two should come out as gold. Isn't that beautiful? Okay. Gosh, I got another whole page of notes here I cannot go through right now. All right, let's finish Ephesians 2. Verse 19, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch. You familiar with him? Yes. Ethiopian eunuch goes to Jerusalem to worship. That Ethiopian eunuch who's a castrated man and he's a Gentile, he's going to get to the wall of separation and see if I cross that wall, I'm to, expected to die for that. So he goes to worship, but he can't get near. So he goes back to Ethiopia, and that's where God sends Philip the evangelist to convert him, right? That's what that eunuch would have experienced here. But now verse 19 says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're not going to get that treatment anymore. Because not only is that wall of separation gone, but as you even approach the Holy of Holies, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in two when Jesus died. And the writer of Hebrews says it was torn in two because now you can enter into the Holy of Holies boldly. 
You have perfect access to God, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. Access to God through Jesus Christ. You're no longer strangers and foreigners. You're fellow citizens. Isn't that amazing? You're not a stranger. You're not a foreigner. Because this is a room full of Gentiles, isn't it? You're a fellow citizen now with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built, this household of God was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So this idea of stones and chief cornerstones and all of this, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter will say, we are all, all of us who come to Christ in faith have become living stones in the temple of God. We're built on the foundation that was laid by Christ and the apostles. And now when we get saved, we're used as a stone in the building of his temple now. Not only are we a stone in the temple, but we are the temple. Because where does God dwell now? In all of you who have come to him in faith. He dwells in you, the temple. But Peter says, have this picture in mind. You are a living stone in this temple. Now think of what Jesus said. Everybody's shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The crowds are going crazy. And the, and the Jewish leadership says, silence your followers. He says, if I silence them, even the rocks and stones will cry out. I don't think he's talking about the things on the ground. He's saying if they shut up, they're going to start screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. You'll never stop the hallelujahs and the Hosannas. Throughout all the world history, they'll always be living stones shouting out Hosannas, won't there? Always. And if you try killing them, their blood will serve as the seed of the church. The church only gets bigger and bigger and bigger the more you persecute it. Isn't that true of church history? The more it gets persecuted, the more martyrs we have, the bigger and the stronger the church gets. Okay, Jesus says the rocks and the stones will cry out. Amen. Father, thank you for this time. And uh, just take all the words, Lord, that mass and jumble of words and syllables that just came from here and just organize it all, Lord, into a unique message from you to each and every individual heart in this room so that I don't get in the way of you being glorified in their lives, Lord. Just have your way with all of us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.